do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. John says, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, abides forever. Over the month of June, we've been focusing on this second chapter of 1 John. Uh, Last couple weeks, the first week um, of June, we covered verses 1 through 6. That reminds us how Christ is our advocate. And then last Sunday, we covered the old slash or the new slash, the old commandment, how we are commanded to love one another, ultimately displaying that we walk or that we live in the light and those who hate walk or live in darkness. In this morning's passage, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, focuses on the love of this world. And so the first thing that John wants us to know, the first thing he stresses to us, do not love the world. If John could make a point, that would be his first point, do not love the world in verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world this word love do not love the world it's a very strong word it's a it's a word of strong desire it's a word of longing for or having an intense craving for and anything that causes emotions or feelings like this demand our devotion we are devoted to what we truly Love. And so this type of love in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 is a type of love that will cause people to put their desires even above their families, above healthy relationships, and even above God. Anything that's placed higher than God is what we call an idol. And so whenever we fall in love with things of this world, we fall in love with idolatry, with idols. We become idolaters. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, the world, the world, or cosmos. It's a word with several meanings. It's a word in reference to the earth or the universe. It's in reference to the earth and its people. That's what John 3.16 is all about, for God so loved the world, which means the earth and its people. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, that is the earth and its people. But according to this text, the word world or cosmos is in reference to a dark, fallen, sinful world whose greatest desire is to rebel against God. 
And so John is not telling us to hate people when he says the world. He's not telling us to hate nature, but he's telling us to hate sin. And that's why it's okay to invite sinners to church, because God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. That's why it's okay to build relationships with sinners within the boundaries of Scripture, because we should love sinners, but hate the sin. John tells us to hate the sin. And the thing that we have in common, the one thing that we have in common with unbelievers is that we're made in the image of God. They're still human like us who are loved by God. That's what John 3.16 is all about. He loves the earth and its people. We are to love sinners but hate the sin. And John takes a step further. He takes it a step further and he goes into giving us an understanding of what the world desires. Verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. He says in verse 16, again, for all that is in the world. And if you look at that verse, you see a dash. For all that is in the world, dash. That dash at the end of the word world is simply to define what has just been said. And so John takes time to briefly tell us what the world has to offer. He says, there's the desires of the flesh. What are the, what is the desires of the flesh? As human beings, we have desires. It's natural to have desires of the flesh, but some of our desires are rooted from our fallen nature. And one of those is the desires of the flesh. It's internal temptation. It's desires that are only revolved around what makes us happy doing what feels good to me, doing what feels right to me, and it's presented in different forms. We see it in substances. We see it in food. We see it in laziness. We see it in procrastination. And when someone submits to these desires of the flesh, they live only to please themselves, their sinful body, and their mind. The world tells us, that if you have these desires, you have the right to fulfill it. But the Bible teaches that because we're born in sin, we're born sinners, and our desires are broken, we should seek to resist the desires of the flesh. He goes on, he talks about the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh are internal temptations, but the desires of the eyes or the desires of the flesh are internal temptations, but the desires of the eyes are external temptations. What we see on television, what we see in movies, the desires of the eyes, it causes us to go in debt, shopping, and living beyond our means. The desires of the eyes. And then he goes on to the pride of life. The original language, the pride of life, points to someone who is constantly boasting about their achievements, boasting about their possessions, their accomplishment. It seems as if they have a long list of people that they just have to let you know that they know. They got all these celebrities in their phone. You just have to know their accomplishments. They can't live without an applause. They can't live without some type of praise or notoriety. They're people who always want you to know how popular or how independent or how strong they are. In fact, it's unfortunate 
But we find things like that sometimes even in the church, how sometimes it has crept its way in the church. You just have to know how many people I discipled. You have to know how many services I participated in. You have to know how often I pray and fast and read my Bible. Even though Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I just have to let you know what I'm doing. And then we say, all glory to God. The pride of life. These are behaviors that display a love for the things of the world. First John 2, 15 and 16. Altogether, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. Notice in these texts how John makes a clear distinction between the world and God. He's declaring that there should be a clear separation between the things of the world and God. This brings me to my next point. Because there is such a clear separation, this means that sin is competitive. Temptation is competitive. I'm going to let you choose which one you want to write down, but sin is competitive. Temptation is competitive. Sin or temptation competes for our love toward God. We are in sin. This whole world is in darkness because sin competed against our love for God. Temptation competed against our love for God. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first thing Satan is doing is question God's authority. Did God actually tell you what to do? Did God actually have the nerve to tell you what you're going to do with your life? Don't we hear that today? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say touch it, but I digress. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. In other words, God's lying to you, Eve. God's not telling you the truth. There's something he's not telling you. There's something that he's hiding from you. And I'm about to let you know everything. I'm about to spill the tea. I'm about to spill the beans. You're going to know everything that God is holding you back from. He says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's holding you back, Eve. God is holding you back. You have too much in you to limit yourself to God's word. Go be great. That's what, that's what the serpent is telling Eve. Go be great. Go live your best life. Follow your heart, Eve. That's where Disney Channel got it from. Genesis 3. Go be great and follow your heart. 
And verse six, this is the result of it. So when the woman saw the desires of the eyes, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, pride of life, she took its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so what we are seeing, temptation changed her view of God and his word. It changed her view of, uh, in a prideful way. It changed her view of herself in a prideful way. It changed her view of the forbidden fruit. The things of the world, the temptations are competitive. The things of the world are from Satan. Satan's greatest goal is to distract all believers from growing in their walk with the Lord and to keep unbelievers from hearing the gospel and receiving Jesus as Lord. And so what we are seeing is the devil trying to compete against God to win Adam and Eve's love and their devotion. Sin and temptation is competitive. In this chapter in Genesis, everything is against everything that John is trying to tell us to resist in this letter. Adam and Eve, they submitted to their desires. They submitted to their desires of the eyes when they saw the fruit. They carried out their action because they submitted to their desires of the flesh. They saw this as an opportunity to please their flesh, to do what felt right for them, to do what would make them happy. And for a moment, they saw themselves equal with God, causing them to rebel openly without a second thought. That's the pride of life. So this mindset was passed down for anybody that's born of Adam. Once Adam rebelled, we know sin consumed the world. It poisoned his DNA. So anybody who's born of Adam is instantly born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And so John is writing this letter to us to let us know that the desires for the things of the world result are a result of our fallen and our sin nature. I'm going to read this again. First John 2, verse 15 through 16. You might have this memorized by the time I'm done. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, he defines it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The next point that John is trying to make, there's always a need for mature Christians. There is always a need for mature Christians. Why am I saying this? Notice how this morning's passage, John only refers to God as the Father. He refers to God as the Father. And it's because John is writing this letter to fathers in the faith or mature believers and sons in the faith or immature believers who still have some growing to do. And I think that, however, you know, with it being Father's Day, I think that this is applicable not only to spiritual fathers, but even fathers, natural fathers, and fathers who are leading their families, earthly fathers. And so I want to take time to just talk to you briefly. First off, John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you knew him who is from the beginning. 
And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So this letter is written to fathers in the faith, but it can be applied to both spiritual fathers and earthly fathers. And I just want to take the time out just to talk to fathers very briefly. This letter was written to encourage fathers to be an example, not only based on how they teach, but how they live. You know, fathers, the weight is on you. The, the, the weight is on you in Genesis chapter 3 that I read earlier, how Eve rebelled first, but sin entered the world once Adam ate. That's when chaos began, when the man ate. When we look at this, Adam rebels, and I want to encourage you, we must be in position. We must be in possession to lead and protect God's people, God's family, and our family that God has blessed us with. Adam eats of the fruit. I read to you earlier Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, and I want to skip to verse 8 and 9 real quick. So they eat of the fruit, right? Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. The Bible says in Genesis 3, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? So again, Adam rebels against God and he recognizes the presence of God in the garden. He runs and he hides from an all-seeing God. I don't know what he was thinking, but he runs and hides from an all-seeing God because they sinned. Both of them sinned. But who did God call out? Adam. He called out Adam in verses 8 and 9 because the command not to eat the forbidden fruit was given directly from God to Adam, and Adam served as the pastor and told Eve. And so when God walks in the garden, he calls Adam and says, where are you? Now, that doesn't make any sense because how does an all-knowing God ask, where are you? But this is not a question of location. This is a question of position. Where are you? And I believe that that is still the same question that God is asking today. The spiritual fathers, God is asking, where are you? Because we have many teachers. We don't have many fathers. Whereas God is asking, for those men who are struggling to put the pride of life and their achievements above their family, God is asking, where are you? For those spiritual fathers that are needed in the body of Christ to lead those who are just getting in the faith, God is asking, where are you? This is a question that's being asked not only to natural fathers, but even spiritual fathers, those who are in the faith. And my question to spiritual fathers, whether you have children or not, are you in position, ready to serve 
God by pouring into those who are new to the faith? Have you made yourself available to the babes in Christ looking to grow in their relationship with God? This morning's passage, it's addressing fathers in the faith to lead well. And I believe that this is also a reminder to earthly fathers of the standards set by the father of all creation. He set an example for us to follow. But as fathers, you know, we mess up, we, we fall short, we, we mess up and we sin. But whether you are a mature believer or an immature believer in the faith, we all know what it's like to mess up. And for those who have never received Christ, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is why it needs to be preached daily. Because God is not only a righteous God, but he is a holy and righteous father. And when we rebelled against God, we rebelled against this father, sin came into the world. We were separated from God, deserving nothing but his wrath. But instead of giving us his wrath, he gave us his son. So Jesus, God the son, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, tempted at all points. He was tempted to submit to the desires of the flesh. He was tempted to submit to the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Read Matthew 4. When you get a chance, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness and gives and offers to give him all the pleasures of this world if he would submit to him. He said, bow down and worship me. That's a word of complete devotion. Submit to me and I will give you everything. He said, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread and prove your power. But that was outside of the Father's will. The desires of the flesh. But the first thing that Jesus did was quoted scripture because it's the word that gives us the strength to overcome temptation. Tempted at all points, but didn't sin. He was tempted to boast and his accomplishments, you know, Jesus was a miracle worker. You know, Jesus walked on water. Jesus rose people from the dead. Who would not want to brag about that? But Jesus said, all glory goes to the Father. Tempted to boast and live in the pride of life, but he remained humble and submissive to the Father. Tempted at all points, but never sinned. And because he was so sinless, he took the wrath of the Father for our sins by dying on the cross. The wrath of the Father was poured out on the innocent Christ because we live contrary to everything this morning's passage teaches against. We lived arrogantly. We were focused on the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. But Jesus, who knew no sin, took so much wrath that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He died on the cross for our sins and then he was buried. But three days later, Jesus bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. Man, I feel like preaching now. But when your faith is in Christ, we got to get an organ or something, man. 
But when your faith is in Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And though sin may have influence, it no longer has dominion. And so through the finished work of Christ, believers are seen as righteous in the eyes of the Father. And so I want to encourage fathers who are struggling. I want to remind you of the gospel. You are seen as a believer in Christ, as a righteous father in the eyes of the father because of the son. So I want to encourage you because this world is against fathers. This world is against fathers. Look on Disney+. Plus. This world is against men leading their families. And I want to let you know that God the Father is with you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? When you are saved, from the penalty of sin, the Holy Spirit fills us and speaks to us through his word. You know, we don't have all the answers, but it's God has his word. His word tells us to trust him. And it provides guidelines on how to lead our families and those who make up the body of Christ. And so my question again to fathers, and I would even make this a general question to everybody. How often are you feasting on God's word? How are you looking? How often are you looking for wisdom from the perfect father instead of trying to depend and lean on your own wisdom and understanding with leading those who God has graced you to lead and disciple? John says in verse 13 that it was written to fathers in the faith or those who are mature in the faith. But again, back to this morning's passage, he says later in verse 15, do not love the things of the world or do not love the world or the things of the world. And then he continues by saying, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, he continues, these desires are not from the Father, but are from the world. My last point, I believe it is, Real Christians wrestle. Real Christians wrestle. He says these desires are not from the Father, but are from the world. Real Christians wrestle. All of us have sinned. All of us have come short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. But the question is, are you convicted when you sin? Is there a sense of guilt when you sin, is there a sense of sorrow when you sin? Do you feel this heaviness of guilt when you sin? And if you feel that, it's because you're saved. When you receive Christ as Lord of our lives, when we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us and he serves as a guide, walking us in this process, in this road of sanctification. And so if you feel that sense of sorrow over your sin, you are feeling the Holy Spirit remind you of God's standard. You are being corrected by God. And I know that word corrected, I know that word discipline, it sounds harsh. It's a word that we often run from, but I want you to look at Hebrews 12. And you can write this down and read it later, but Hebrews 12, 
verses 5, and I'm going to read a few verses. The writer says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and and chastises every son or daughter, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so if you have not been disciplined by God, you might want to reevaluate your relationship with him. This is one of the ways that God displays his love to his children. Conviction is not meant to harm us, but it's meant to grow us in our relationship with the Lord so that we can live out what we profess. And so this is what separates authentic Christians from those who simply profess it. Because a Christian is a child of God who seeks to live like their heavenly father. And so when we sin, we feel horrible because we rebelled against the perfect father. And so if you sin and have no conviction, as I said before, you might want to reevaluate your relationship with God. If you know that your actions go against God's word, but you feel that God's word needs to be updated and it's irrelevant to the times, you might want to reevaluate your walk with the Lord because there's a chance that you're not in Christ. This passage is so important for us to feast on because even as believers, we wrestle with the desires of the world. And before I move on, I want to focus and I want to pause on that word, wrestle, because it might just sum up everything I've just said. This word wrestle, it's another display of authentic belief in Jesus. Again, real Christians wrestle. And so the word wrestle in regard to this passage, not not Jacob wrestling with God, but in this passage, the word wrestle is to fight against the urge. And so that means if you're wrestling your desires of this world, it's because you're not on the same team. You know, I love football, and I don't, I can't think of a time where I've seen a football player purposely tackle his own teammate. The goal is to tackle your opponent. I've never seen a boxer leave his opponent and go fight everybody in his own corner because the goal is to fight against your opponent. The goal is to attack those who attack you in this context of Scripture. And so sin, sin has no desire to make us stronger in the faith. Satan has no desire to see us grow in our walk with our Heavenly Father. And so real Christians wrestle and attack the enemy through prayer, through the reading of the word, feasting on God's word in Christian community. Who's holding you accountable? That's what Christian community is all about. Who's holding you accountable? At Coastal, at this church, we believe in discipleship. We believe in you being mentored 
somebody pouring into you, pouring into you. And then we believe in peers and friendships holding you accountable, somebody that's equal with you. And then we believe in you pouring into someone else, pouring, being poured into peers, being poured into someone else. What does that look like? That looks like someone living out the gospel. That's what that looks like. Being poured into peers, pouring into someone else. Who's holding you accountable? We need Christian community to, to live this life that we profess as Christians. Real Christians wrestle. Real Christians recognize sin and refuse to stay in it. I, I, I've seen some incredible athletes in my time and before my time. And one of my favorite boxers is Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer that has ever set foot on planet Earth is Muhammad Ali. And the crazy thing about this guy, he was knocked down several times, but he was never knocked out. He, he fought with a broken jaw. He was hit in the head so many times, but he kept fighting. He would get knocked to the floor, but he would get up. There were times where he even lost a couple fights. But I'll tell you one thing. Every fight he lost, he gave that opponent a fight to remember. Because at the end of the day, that opponent was still fighting a champ. I, I, I remember, and the crazy thing, a couple days ago, I was talking to some of the pastors of Coastal, and it's mind-blowing that this year, for any basketball fans, it, it marks 20 years since Jordan's second retirement, Michael Jordan's second retirement. He played again in that while, long time. He played against the 76ers, and, um, and he lost. This is his second retirement, and he lost. But till this day, people still talk about that game because Jordan gave them a game to remember because at the end of the day, the 76ers were still going against a champ. We're going to fall sometimes. We're going to be knocked down because sometimes the pressures of life of this sinful world will hit us so hard that we will fall right into temptation. But a real child of God, a real child of God who feasts on God's word will always get back up. Because at the end of the day, the opponent is fighting a champ. Fighting a champ. Because through Christ, we are champions. And so real Christians wrestle and refuse to stay down even when being knocked down because they recognize that God is greater than the sin and the pleasures of this world. That is the mindset of a child of God. Christians wrestle. My last point, for real. <laughs> Unbelievers play along. Unbelievers play along. So Christians wrestle. Real Christians wrestle. But when a person never wrestles against sin, there's a chance that it, they might be on the same team. And so my question, how often are you putting your desires above God's will and his word? How often are you feasting on God's word and living in Christian community so you may resist the temptation? Because all of us sin, again, according to Romans 3.23, but how often are you convicted? 
How often do you wrestle against the urge to sin because we're living in a day where sinners are gathering in church buildings and calling themselves Christians? How can you tell the difference between an authentic Christian and and someone who simply professes it? Well, when you see preachers not seeing the problem in performing homosexual marriages and they try to use scripture to justify it, they're probably unbelievers playing along. When you see people trying to justify the lifestyle of this world, they use scripture. When they see the Bible as just another religious book along with the Quran, it's not God's word breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. More than likely, they're not authentic Christians who wrestle, but they are unbelievers who play along. And so when you hear people who claim to be Christian, but you don't see the life, be aware. Beware. Because they are unbelievers who are playing along. When you pull a friend aside and you love them in private and tell them, call their sin out, and they try to use scripture to justify it, they're more than likely an unbeliever playing along. And these are just a few examples. But the more we read God's word, the more we spend time in the presence of mature believers, the more we will recognize authentic Christians. He closes in verse 17. And the end, at the end of this letter for for today, in John, 1 John 2.17, he says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I have told you this two times, and I promise you, this is my last point. The end is coming. I promise, like I said, the end. The end is coming, not only for the world, but for my message. (laughs) The end is coming. This is a reminder. This letter is a reminder to believers, and it is a warning to unbelievers. The world that you know, the pleasures that this world offers will pass away. It is temporary. The things we crave, they are temporary. The money, the substances, the titles, the positions, the fame, the fortune, the degrees are all temporary. After Jesus' bodily resurrection, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father in heaven, And since that day, we have been living in the last days. And you're going to hear more about that next Sunday. But someday soon, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return. And when Jesus returns, (laughs) he's not going to return as the sweet 33-year-old from Galilee. He's going to return as a righteous judge. And every part of this sinful world will be wiped away. And the reign of Christ will last for eternity. And so John is letting us know that if you desire the eternal Father, you'll live eternally. You'll have eternal joy. You'll have eternal peace. However, it's a warning to unbelievers, those who have made this world their home, those who 
care less. They could care less about God's word and his standards and sin with no conviction and only experience. They only seek to experience the peace and joy that this world can give. You know, this world can't give you nothing eternally. They will suffer. It's better to suffer on earth and live your best life in eternity than to live your best life on earth and suffer for eternity. So this is a reminder. This letter is a reminder to believers and a warning to unbelievers. First John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for you are the perfect father. And we thank you that you sent your perfect sinless son to dwell among imperfect people. We thank you for the gospel and how you poured out your wrath upon him. We thank you that he took our sin. We thank you that you raised him from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that us as fathers, whether spiritual or natural, have the greatest example of a father to look up to. We thank you for your provision through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we go from day to day, we would live a life of examination. We would examine our hearts, examine our minds daily to make sure that we are right with you, to make sure that we're growing in our relationship with you. We thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. We ask that you would just expose the sin in our hearts. And we ask that the consuming fire of God would get rid of everything that's not like you so that we may live like Jesus and our Father in heaven would be glorified. We give you praise. We give you glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.